Well, if you would uh, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John and chapter 3. 1 John and chapter 3. In just a moment, we'll read verses 4 to 10. You can find this uh, in the Pew Bible on page 1022. 1022. Tonight, as we ready ourselves for Christmas, for spiritual thoughts about the advent of our Savior, we are considering in this devotion tonight a simple question. Why did Jesus come? Why did the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, take flesh, be born of a woman, to be born into this world of darkness and curse? You know, the Bible gives us a lot of detail in answering that question, and we could spend time tonight going from Genesis to Revelation, considering about 50 different passages together. That would not be a short devotional, so that's not what we're going to do. We're going to instead here simply consider 1 John chapter 3, where the Apostle John is telling us of the new life that born-again children of God have, specifically addressing our relationship to sin, but he also tells us two reasons why Jesus came. And I want us to consider them. Well, if you would, follow along with me as I read this passage. 1 John 3, verses 4 to 10. This is God's Word. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him, there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. <clears throat> this is not a passage many people consider during the Christmas season, but again, there are a couple of reasons here why Christ came that John relates to us. I want to step back for a second before we get into that, though, and remind you or say to you that the key idea in this paragraph is really hard to miss. Those who have been born of God have a certain pattern of life. And what is that pattern? Well, they practice righteousness. And if we go back to chapter 2, verse 29, through our section, John says that three times. It's emphatic. Even more emphatic is the declaration that one born of God who abides in Christ does not make it a practice to sin, or we could translate, does not continually sin. John says that in varying ways six times. So how does the Christian live? 
What's the evidence of new birth? Well, the believer in Christ Jesus practices righteousness as the Lord Himself is righteous. And he can't keep on sinning. He can't make it a practice of sinning because he's been born of God. He's been changed. Now, two immediate questions <clears throat> arise here. Does this mean that Christians no longer sin? Well, back in 1 John chapter 1, John made it clear that anyone claiming to be without sin is a deceived person, and the truth is not in him. We sin. Believers sin and can sin spectacularly, as Moses and David did in the Old Testament, as Peter and John Mark did in the New. Well, then we have to ask another question. Is the practice of righteousness perfect righteousness? Well, again, John has already anticipated the believer needing to confess his sin. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul also reminds us in his great statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am, not I was, I am right now the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. So what exactly is John explaining as he teaches us here that those who are born again practice righteousness and don't practice sin? Well, John's saying this, the work of Christ in the believer's heart brings a radical change, a new direction. Our nature is transformed. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. No longer are we under the dominion of sin. That is the binding power of sin. We've been liberated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Dying to sin in Christ, being raised to a new life. We're indwelt by the Spirit and empowered to go a new way. The work Jesus did for us, applied by the Spirit of God, has changed us. So what exactly did Jesus do? What's here that we're focusing as the Apostle addresses, why did Jesus come? John says Jesus came for two great works. And the first is this, verse 5, you can see it in the text. You know that He, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him is no sin. Now consider this with me for a moment. <clears throat> Jesus came as the holy child, the spotless lamb, himself untainted by any corruption of sin, but he came to deal with the problem of sin in his people. What exactly is the nature of the problem? Well, according to Scripture, all mankind by nature are slaves. As Jesus explains in John 8 when he's addressing the Pharisees, he says everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Do you hear that, that same language in our, in our passage? Practice sin? It means to be habitually gripped by sin's power so that the inclinations of our thoughts and the things that flow out of our hearts are all tainted with sin. We're dominated by it as if we're in chains. Paul provides the strongest language. Parks prayed it earlier that there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one who does good. Or Paul will say in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Now as Paul says these things, 
he's only quoting the Old Testament, which is really interesting. In other words, the Bible's universal witness to man's nature is this. Man isn't basically good. Man isn't sometimes good with a little bit of corruption peeking out. No man, as he stands before God's law, is declared a sinner. And it's worse because the God, God's law says that cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything written in the book of the law. Galatians 3, quoting Deuteronomy 27. Further, James tells us if we fail at just one point of the law, we're guilty of breaking the whole law. James 2.10 That's a thorough condemnation of man in terms of his own sin. But Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, he was told that this child being born to his betrothed, this one conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, is to be called Jesus for He will save His people from their sins. Tomorrow morning if you come back, we'll talk about that text. But Jesus comes to deal with the problem of sin that, brethren, we can't escape. Now what exactly did Jesus do to deal with the problem? Well, there's a reason the forerunner to Jesus, John, the one baptizing, called Jesus the Lamb of God. Because the provision in God's law for sins to be taken away is that sin be transferred to a sacrifice. Now this was symbolically portrayed as the sinner brought an animal, a lamb, to the priest in view of his sin. And the man needing cleansing would lay his hand on the head of that offering. It was a picture of the transfer of guilt. I confess my guilt over this beast. I should die because the wages of sin is death, but I offer this animal in my place. And then the animal was sacrificed so that the sinner would be accepted before God. However, as the author of Hebrews will tell us in Hebrews chapter 10, it is impossible for the blood of these animals continually offered year after year to take away sin. Why is it impossible? Well, animals can't substitute for us. They're animals. Animals don't even have souls. Yes, they're affected by the fall. Our sin caused a problem for them. But animals don't sin. They aren't given the law. And they don't violate that law. So they can't bear our sins and satisfy the justice that we deserve before God. We need a substitute who is one of us. We need a man who can truly stand in our stead. Further, while animals sacrificed were mandated to be without blemish. You couldn't bring a lame offering, a blind sheep. But that didn't mean that they were perfect in the sense of morally perfect before the law of God. It pictured perfection. But they didn't have a moral perfection. And that's what we need. We don't just need a clean slate. We need a positive righteousness. And that's what Jesus has. In fact, that's an Old Testament name for Him. The Lord, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23. Again, this emphasizes what's said in our text. That in Him, in Christ, there is no sin. Jesus was born holy and He remained holy. 
The devil couldn't entice him to sin in the wilderness temptations. Jesus' enemies couldn't accuse him of sin. They had to bring false witnesses against him to have any charge to lay at him at all. Jesus is totally righteous before the law of God. Even Pilate recognized this. Three times in Luke 23, Pilate declares, I find no guilt in this man. Jesus came to do God's will, and He did it in every respect. The Father says repeatedly that this is His beloved Son with whom or in whom He is well pleased. Jesus, therefore, dear friends, has the credentials to take away sin. He has a perfect record that He can substitute for our bad record. And He can truly stand in our stead and take our punishment. Well, that's what Jesus comes to do. Sin, Isaiah 59.2, has made a separation between us and God. And Jesus comes to stand in the gap. Jesus comes to make reconciliation. The Father in love sent His Son to be the Lamb who bears our sin, our guilt, our crimes, all our iniquity is laid on Jesus and He suffers upon that, upon that cruel cross. Only this, unlike those sacrificial animals which suffered over and over and over or it had to be repeated and repeated and repeated, Jesus suffers once and for all time because He satisfies the justice of God. He will declare from the cross famous words, it is, you know the next word, finish. The debt is paid. What is He saying? Our sins are definitively taken away. As Psalm 103.10 puts it, as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. And in the place of the black stain of sin, God gifts the righteousness of His Son to those who believe in Jesus. No longer standing as guilty before God, but clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we who believe are declared the children of God. And brethren, as ch children of God, as those made alive with Christ who've been washed, credited as righteous, we now live as new people. That's what John's trying to get at here in this text. In view of Christ's coming, dear friends, we should stand back and marvel. What a stupendous gift of salvation which should thrill our hearts. Do you remember how the Christmas hymn writer puts it? We didn't sing this tonight. We don't usually sing this as a hymn. It's usually someone singing by themselves. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, pining for something more till He appeared. And then it goes on to say, a thrill of hope. The weary, the right word is, soul rejoices. We, we rejoice with a thrill of hope at this gift of God's Son. Why? Because the bondage that we could never escape is broken. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And we who believe in Christ, who rest in Christ for salvation, we are free from the penalty and power of sin. Jesus came to give us life where death dominated. He came to put us on a path to freedom rather than a path of misery. And not only that, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, comes to dwell in our hearts directly 
that we might have communion with the living God. What an incredible work that baby Jesus has come to do to cancel our record of debt, to make us acceptable before the Father, to give us a new heart. But that's not all. A second reason Jesus came, John highlights. Second half of verse 8. Read the text with me. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It begs a question, doesn't it? What are the works of the devil? Well, in this passage, in the larger context, John, beginning of verse 8, says, whoever makes it a practice of sinning is of the devil. The devil is at work in the sons of disobedience. Jesus will tell this very thing to the Pharisees in John 8. After confronting them about their slavery to sin, they say, we've never been slaves to anybody. And you have to scratch your head. What are these guys thinking? They were in slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves in Babylon. They're clearly not thinking correctly here. <clears throat> but Jesus takes it on a spiritual plane. They start arguing, hey, we're children of Abraham. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You would do Abraham's deeds if you were Abraham's children. But the deeds that you do are those of being a liar and a murderer, which associates you with someone who is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, which is the devil. Jesus says, your father's the devil. That was a conversation ender, by the way. And they soon picked up stones to stone him. What's the implication here for us as we think on this text? Well, while the Bible calls the devil the God of this world who blinds the minds of or the eyes of unbelievers, Jesus came to open eyes. Jesus came to liberate. Jesus' miracles and exorcisms as He's cast out demons, those show the power the Gospel has to overcome the devil's works. If you want a little taste of it in about a 24-hour period of time, Go read Mark 4 and 5, the end of Mark 4, where Jesus conquers nature, opposing Him, a mighty storm, where Jesus heals a, a demoniac, casts out a legion of demons, that's a lot, where He heals a woman with the flow of blood, and then He conquers what seems to be the unconquerable, death itself. Jesus liberates people from Satan's power. He is overthrowing Satan's demonic influence. And while Satan can touch us physically, it's chiefly a spiritual power that Jesus has in view here. Satan, you see, is no mythological figure of medieval invention. He is a real nemesis. He has real might he has a real realm of influence. <clears throat> he labors in this world among the sons of Adam, those who are fallen in Adam, to promote rebellion, deceit, murder, immorality, idolatry, and the like. And you can read of his horrible works in the early portions of Genesis. Just start in, verse, in chapter 3 and go to chapter 11. And you will find mankind descends into lies, Bloodshedding, perpetual violence, all kinds of violations of sexual norms, drunkenness, pride, and so forth. And as man stands stained with all these demonically enticed corruptions, 
the devil brings his chief weapon out. Accusation. He is the great accuser. That's what the word Satan means. Accuser. He knows God's righteous standard. He knows that sin deserves death, eternal death. And he delights to drive us into law-breaking, having duped us to thinking that sin will somehow satisfy us. But then he turns on us and rails against us as sinners. He's like that horrible friend some of you had when you were younger who got you, got you into trouble. It was his idea. And then when you're caught, he's blaming you. This one is guilty. This one deserves to die. This one is full of filth. He should be condemned. Over and over and over, he brings charges against us. And here's the thing that's really striking. He's right often in his charges. It's not like we could stand and shout back at him, I'm not guilty. I have no sin. No, Proverbs 20 verse 9 explicitly declares, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. The devil thrives off of this declaration of our guilt and he threatens us with the fear of death in view of sin. Sinners are going to experience the wrath and curse of God. So Satan terrorizes men with the thought of death and specifically with the thought of coming condemnation. And as Scripture informs us, Satan is unceasing in his accusations. John, in another book he'll write, the Revelation, he calls Satan the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Revelation 12. Or we could go back to Zechariah 3. In Zechariah 3, the high priest Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. <clears throat> Satan is pointing out that Joshua is clothed in filthy garments which are symbolic of sin. That's exactly how the devil attacks us. He stirs us to sin. He makes sin seem inconsequential. It's no big deal. But then the moment we slip and stumble, He rubs our noses in our sin to oppress us. He shouts out what we deserve. He suggests we will never be accepted before God. And on and on the devil goes until we are locked up in misery. However, this is precisely where King Jesus comes to give us relief. Brethren, when Jesus comes into this world, He comes into the devil's turf. You ever heard the idea in sports of home field advantage? The devil has it. <clears throat> yes, you and I know that this is God's world, but it's dominated by the evil one. And Jesus comes as a man into the devil's turf, the cursed world, in His incarnation. And He comes to take the fight to the devil. Now, the devil knew the trouble was coming. That's why he provokes Herod the Great upon learning of the king's birth to send troops to Bethlehem to slaughter all of those children. Stop him before he comes. Well, he's thwarted. But then comes the ministry of Jesus. <clears throat> you remember how the Spirit of God thrusts Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Jesus locks horns with the devil and overcomes. He, he resists the three fierce temptations and tells the devil to be gone. After that, Jesus comes into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God full of the Spirit, proclaiming liberty to captives, 
because he has overcome the devil. He's bound the strong man and now he's beginning to plunder Satan's house, pulling people away from Satan's dominion and setting them free. And all of this is going to climax at the cross. There the devil comes up with his master scheme. And man, it was a master plan. Judas, one of Jesus' own, is a traitor. Self-righteous, but wicked religious leaders. And then a pragmatic Roman official Pilate. They're all scheming together to have Jesus crucified. But in the crucifixion, unbeknownst to the devil, that's the very plan of God. Because it was the Father who sent His Son into the world to go and bear our curse. It was the Father who placed our iniquities upon Jesus that He would satisfy God's justice against us. It was the Father who sent His Son to take the blow for all of Satan's accusations that would be targeted at us. And there on that cursed tree, Jesus paid for our sin and He nullified, He destroyed Satan's power to accuse. And what I mean is this, brethren. The devil can come at us now with his sharpest arrow and he can fire a dart at us demanding our death. But the arrow is blunt and it falls. Why? It's not because you're righteous. It's because Jesus is our shield and defender, our Savior, and He's already extinguished the justice of God due to the violators of the law who trust in Him. Our record of debt is canceled. That means the ammunition the devil has to fire against us is empty. It's useless. He can't work His work of destruction because we are safely in Jesus' camp. We've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And in God's kingdom, Satan can't touch our souls. He can't tear us away from the Lord Jesus. He's a lion with no fangs. He roars. He makes a big fuss. But against the people of God, he can do nothing to sever our relationship to Jesus Christ. So Satan's primary tactic to provoke you to fear of death is totally shattered because the sting of death is sin. And Christ has given us victory over sin. Satan's power to slander, to drive us to misery, to oppress us is forever broken. So we who believe in Christ, we now have a gracious Master, a new Master. And our Master, the Lord Jesus, He keeps us. Indeed, in view of the coming cross, the place where Christ would suffer, yes, but the place where He would win a victory, Jesus said in John 12, now the ruler of this world would be cast out. Satan with his power has been cast down. Now, that doesn't mean Satan has ceased to be active. It doesn't mean Satan has ceased to oppose us. What it means is that Satan's doom is sealed. The devil cannot dominate us. And it's all because of Jesus. You know, I'll I'll close with this. Our Christmas hymns, they really bring these kind of truths out. It's really remarkable that so many are singing them, they don't even know what they're saying. But maybe one of them gets to the core of this better than others. It goes like this. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Don't don't be afraid. Why not? Remember 
Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why was He born? To save us all from Satan's power while we were gone astray. How should I respond to that? Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Dear friends, dear believer in Christ, we've been saved from Satan's power and tyranny. Saved from the crushing load of sin. We have comfort and joy. For Jesus was born His people to deliver, born a child, yet a king, born to reign in us forever, and now His gracious kingdom bring. He was born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. And with this new birth, the kingdom of God reigns in us, and we belong to the King. We come at Christmas to remember that the King is here, and we belong to Him. We've been liberated. We should be really excited about that great truth. We're going to sing about it, but pray with me first. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the wondrous works that our Savior King Jesus has done. We thank You that He came into this world in a state of humiliation, but He triumphed for us, and He's been raised, exalted over all. He reigns on high, and we are forever connected to Him as we repent of sin and believe in Him. Lord, would You give us a sense of our security and of the great joy that should thrill our hearts, even now, over the coming of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.